podcast for Sunday, December 24th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Due to copyright restrictions, we're unable to play the audio versions of the video clips that we're showing during the series. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The American Film Institute lists it as the number one most inspirational American film of all time. This Frank Capra movie premiered on December 20th, 1946, and it eventually garnered five Academy Award nominations. Today, It's a Wonderful Life is virtually unparalleled in its popularity, especially at Christmas time. And by the way, if you've never seen it, it will be on tonight at 8 o'clock on NBC. Come to the early service, you can go home and watch the movie. (laughs) What makes it interesting is that it was not a commercial success when it first hit the box office. In fact, it lost half a million dollars on its initial release, which back in 1946 was a lot. It's still a lot of money, right? But it was really a lot of money then. Welcome to the third installment of our current series entitled Christmas the Director's Cut. And each week during this series, we're taking a different Hollywood Christmas film and seeing how it helps shed light on the traditional story of Christmas found in the Bible. The first week, we connected Isaiah's message of preparing a way for the Savior with the childlike enthusiasm for Christmas from the movie Elf. In week two, we looked at John the Baptist's call for repentance and paralleled the transformation in Ebenezer Scrooge from the 1941 edition of A Christmas Carol. Well, today, Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed will help us focus on what might have been going through Joseph's mind and heart as he pondered how to react to the news of Mary's pregnancy. I hope this will bring some blessing to you as you continue to prepare your own hearts and lives for the coming of Christ this Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life takes place shortly after World War I. It centers around the life of George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart. Bailey grew up in Bedford Falls, and most of the film is told through flashbacks spanning over the course of his life. The movie is narrated by Franklin and Joseph, unseen angels who are preparing Clarence, an angel's second class, for his upcoming mission, intervening into the life of George Bailey. Clarence has shown the lifetime of good that George performed leading up to his time to intervene. Starting when he saved his little brother from drowning after an ice sledding accident, though jumping into the freezing cold water uh, made him lose the hearing in his left ear. As a young man, he noticed uh, his grief-stricken pharmacist boss, whose son had just died of influenza and received a telegram. He had absentmindedly created some uh, medication for someone that had poison in it. But George was able to intervene and stop the medication from getting out into the hands of people who would have accidentally gotten hurt. So George is a young man that has a lot going for him. He's eager to get out of Bedford Falls, to see the world, to go to college, and eventually be an architect. However, he sacrifices going off to college himself until his younger brother, Harry, graduates from high school and then can take over the family business so George can go to school. This first scene that I'm going to show you takes place on Harry's high school graduation night. And while at a graduation dance, someone jokingly opens the school pool that was just built underneath the gym with this retracting floor. And George and his childhood sweetheart, Mary, uh, accidentally fall in. In this scene, he's walking her home. They both had to borrow spare clothes uh, from the school. 
and they start talking about their future. Mm. George knows exactly what he wants for his life. But later that evening, he gets word that his father has had a stroke and soon dies. And in the days and weeks that follow, George butts heads with Mr. Potter, the wealthy board member of his father's building and loan company, who already owns most of the town, including being a key influencer in the town's bank. Potter wants to close the Bailey building and loan and end the nonsense of extending loans to the town's working poor. After George stands up to Potter's bullying, the board of directors votes to keep the building and loan open, but only if George will be the one to be the new president, which means he has to put his hopes and dreams for college on hold again. So George sends his younger brother Harry to college with the money that he had saved. Four years pass, and he looks forward to Harry's graduation when finally Harry could come back and take over the building and loan operations, and he can get out and travel the world like he's wanted to do for so long. But when Harry comes home from college, he brings with him his new wife and a job offer from his father-in-law. And once again, George is forced to come to grips with the fact that his own plans for his future are about to be changed. In this next scene, it's that evening when, when his uh, brother has come home and he's sitting out on the porch talking with his mom. There's not a whole lot of dialogue, but just the facial expressions of James Stewart is amazing. Let's watch. Well, George tries to make the best of things, but eventually he reunites with Mary, who's come home after college. She's quite a few years younger than George. You can see, though, that some of the, the joy that George had for life has waned. Being stuck in Bedford Falls has begun to weigh heavy upon him. Well, they decide to get married, and finally he's going to have a chance now to travel the world like he's wanted to. But on that very same day, the Great Depression hits Bedford Falls, and George and Mary choose to use all of the $2,000 they've saved up for their honeymoon uh, to keep the B&L solvent, rather than to see it closed by uh, the dreaded Mr. Potter. And with absolutely no money left in their savings, Mary calls George to tell him about the special honeymoon experience that she has arranged for them in the very same rundown house that they had just thrown rocks at a few years ago. Well, Mary and George uh, have four children in the years that follow. George even starts Bailey Park, an affordable housing project uh, in their town. And they help others experience the joy of finally being able to own their own homes. And of course, who takes umbrage of this? Mr. Potter. Potter. 90% of the people living in Bailey Park used to pay rent to him. But George refuses to be bought out by Mr. Potter, despite the lucrative personal gain that he could have made. And then when World War II begins, George is prevented from enlisting because of his bad left ear. Harry, on the other hand, goes off to become a Navy pilot. He earns the Congressional Medal of Honor for shooting down 15 enemy warcraft. And on Christmas Eve, George's Uncle Billy absentmindedly misplaces $8,000 that the building and loan was going to deposit in Mr. Potter's bank. Of course, Mr. Potter finds the money, does not return it to its rightful owner. So Uncle Billy discovers his error and then frantically tries to search around to see where it was that he may have left the $8,000. He can't find it anywhere. He doesn't even remember if he had it with him when he walked into the bank earlier that day. Well, it just so happens to also be the day that the bank examiner, examiner comes to the building and loan And when George and Uncle Billy can't find the $8,000, all looks lost. And it's at this point in the story that George takes a deep look at his life and considers himself to be a failure, a colossal failure. 
Mr. Potter won't even give him a loan, citing the fact that he has a $15,000 life insurance policy and he's worth more dead than he is alive, which gets George starting to think in the wrong direction. In this scene, he's at his wit's end. His insurance policy is in his coat pocket. He ponders what's the best way to still provide for his family. Well, George is clearly distressed. He's been drinking. He ends up getting punched in the face at the bar. And then while foolishly driving away in a snowstorm, he runs his car into a tree. Stumbling towards a local bridge, he finally makes up his mind to jump off and end his life. There's no turning back now. And this is where Clarence, Angel Second Class, comes in. This is also where we transition from one story to the other. In the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew begins like this. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. From the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, he wants us readers to know that Jesus is grounded in Israel's history. That he can trace his lineage all the way back to the great King David and ultimately back to Abraham. Now, those of you biblical scholars among you might be wondering, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. How is it that he's allowed to use that lineage? Hang in there. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, there's lots of juicy tidbits of information here to unpack. For starters, Mary and Joseph are engaged. And while being engaged then is in some ways similar to our understanding of being engaged today, it's also quite a bit different. And let me tell you, my family knows about being engaged. If you hadn't heard the news, last Saturday, our son Ezra proposed to his girlfriend Tara while they're uh, vacationing in Hawaii, and she accepted. And then last Friday... Uh, our daughter Emily's boyfriend, John, who they're visiting for Christmas, proposed to Emily. So we have two engagements in our family in one week. But back in biblical times, an engagement was a legally binding contract between a man and a woman. So the couple was, at their engagement, for all intents and purposes, already married. The ceremony, whenever it came, was just icing on the cake, so to speak. A couple couldn't break off an engagement. It could only be dissolved in biblical days through death or divorce. Now, we also discover here that Joseph's fiancée is pregnant, which in and of itself wouldn't have been that much of a problem, except for the fact that Joe knows he is not the father of the aforementioned child. And while that might be just a tad bit embarrassing in today's culture, back then it could have been deadly. Deuteronomy 22 says this, If there is a young woman, a virgin, already engaged to be married, and a man meets her in the town and lies with her, you shall bring both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, because she did not cry for help in the town, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. See that engagement already wife connection. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So the law was clear. Unchastity, even in the case of an engaged woman, could very well lead to death by stoning. Now, biblical scholars will point out by by Jesus' day, that practice had largely uh, ended and become neglected. So they didn't stone women for unchastity and men. But nevertheless, the punishment was severe and humiliating. So Joseph's in a tight spot, right? 
Does he suspend all rational thought and believe his fiancée's story that somehow God had impregnated her? Or does he allow the weight of the evidence that he sees before his very own eyes pass judgment on the situation? It's a difficult dilemma, but one that Joseph is more than up to. Again, how he responded, verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. So instead of calling attention to Mary's infidelity, Joseph, who the Bible says was a righteous man, decides not to press charges and simply divorce Mary. End their relationship and all will be forgotten. The Message Bible translation puts it this way. Joseph, chagrined but noble, determined to take care of things quietly so Mary would not be disgraced. That's the plan. That's the best he can come up with, given his circumstances. His life has definitely taken a turn for the worse. The, the plans that he had for his future with Mary have now come to a screeching halt. This is not the pathway he would have wanted it to go, but he wants to make sure that she doesn't end up completely embarrassed. So he has made his mind. But God had other plans. Back to our friend George Bailey, who's also made up his mind. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to end his life and thereby let his family cash in on the insurance policy. But before he can jump off the bridge, angel second-class Clarence appears on the scenes and jumps in first. And of course, George, being a good guy, jumps in after to try to save Clarence from drowning. And it's then that Clarence reveals his true identity, that he's an angel that has been sent to keep George from doing something so drastic and irreversible, such as suicide. George dejectedly declares it's probably better that he was never born. And at that moment in the story, the snow that you see falling outside in the window stops. And Clarence decides to grant George his wish. To see what life would be like without George Bailey. Well, Bedford Falls is now called Pottersville. It's mostly run down, with Main Street being full of pawn shops and sleazy bars. Of course, his friends that he's grown up with, they don't recognize him. All of them are living hard lives. His mother is a bitter woman who runs a boarding house. Uncle Billy is in the insane asylum. Bailey Park was never built. It's just a cemetery. And his kid brother, Harry, never survived that accident as a child. And Mary is a spinster, skittish librarian who never got married and wants nothing to do to, with George when he accosts her on the street. Let's watch as he tries to process all that he's seen. And as the snow starts to fall again, George is back to his wonderful life. He's ecstatic as he discovers his beloved town is back to normal. He runs down the street shouting Merry Christmas to everyone, including mean old Mr. Potter. And Clarence has fulfilled his mission. In our Bible reading, on second thought, Joseph isn't going to quietly divorce Mary like he had planned. The angel tells him not to be afraid to take Mary for his wife, that the child in her womb is from God's Holy Spirit. Now, we modern and sophisticated 21st century folk might question how this immaculate conception could have actually taken place with all we know about biology. But biblical scholar Edward Schweitzer, in his commentary on the, book, on the Gospel of Matthew, reminds us how common it was in the Old Testament to talk about God as being the creative force behind all life. 
It's God's spirit that creates life. So people in Matthew's day wouldn't have thought twice about the angel's explanation to Joseph. If God creates life, then Mary's pregnancy wouldn't be a problem for God at all. Remember Gabriel's conversation with Mary? He goes on, or with Joseph, he goes on to tell him this, verse 21, that Mary will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's a really interesting tidbit that I discovered as I was researching this passage. In Jewish law, when a father names a child, it makes that child the, parent, the, the, the parent's legal, uh, what am I saying here? The child will become legally the son or the daughter of that, of that parent. That's right. So this legal status of son bestows all of the paternal benefits that a biological son or daughter would also enjoy. And so Jesus now is joined to the divinic lineage through Joseph's legal adoption while he symbolically names him Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus has a huge purpose in life to save people from their sins. In fact, that's literally what the name Jesus means. God saves And Joseph was spiritually open enough to accept correction and direction and his misunderstanding of what God's will for his life might be. And so he becomes a model for all of us. Because quite often in life, isn't it the case, we do the best we can. And we decide, okay, here's what we're going to do. And then somewhere along the way, God often changes our plans. And and the challenge is we can fight it and we can continue to want to go the way that we originally thought or we can be open to the new situations and how God is saying, no, here's where I want you to go. Sometimes it's hard to admit that we are wrong or mistaken, that we may have jumped to conclusions a bit too quickly, but God loves us enough not to leave us where we are. God may actually bother us, bug us, nag us, Find whatever it takes to get us to listen to the direction that God wants for our lives. In the film, George goes back to his house to discover that not only are all of his friends from town there, but they've taken this huge collection. They've raised more than the $8,000 that was missing to pay off the money for the deposit. And this is at the point where his younger brother, Harry, arrives from out of town. In It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey is reminded that he is rich in many different ways. Maybe not financially, but especially with his relationships, right? With our friends, with his friends and family. In our story from Matthew, Joseph is reminded by the angel that his life also has a rich meaning and purpose. He was to be Jesus' father. I wonder if God might be trying to get through to some of us here today. To get us to reconsider some of the decisions we've made for our own lives. I wonder if God might be wanting to say to us on second thought... How about and help us go in a new direction? If you're not sure that all of the aspects of your life are where you want them to be, then why not be bold and ask God to show you the way, like George Bailey did. Give me, give me some direction, God. Now, we may not always get the full view of where God is leading us, but we get enough to know where God wants us to go in our hearts as well. We can trust God enough to believe that he is working for good in our lives. And so if you find yourself there, like George Bailey or Joseph, don't be discouraged. You are not alone. God knows exactly what is going on in your life. You are in good company. And if you're not sure about God's direction for your future, be open to the idea that God may have a few new directions up God's sleeve. Friends, this Christmas, no matter... What happens, let's face it, a life lived with God truly is a wonderful life.
all God's people said. Amen.